It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, September 29th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening to The Guy Benson Show. We are honored and grateful to have you here every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. You can listen live many ways, including across our great affiliates throughout the country. You can also subscribe to Fox Nation, signing up at FoxNation.com. You can watch the live stream from our brand new gorgeous studios that will be officially debuted here in D.C. tomorrow. Ribbon cutting and all that. We're excited. And of course, if you miss any of the program as it airs, there's a podcast available at your fingertips for free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. On the show, we've got our first guest coming up here in just a minute. Later on, Senator Joni Ernst, Republican of Iowa, will be here talking about Afghanistan primarily. She was part of those hearings yesterday. We want to get her perspective. Congressman Michael Burgess, Republican of Texas, will also be here. He has been following very closely as a key member of multiple committees in the House these spending bills that the Democrats are really having trouble shepherding through. And they are going at each other hard. The rifts in some ways seem to be growing deeper. We will have more details on that coming up and also from him in our final hour. Fox News alert as we begin the show. Let's bring you statistics on coronavirus as we do every day. The case count in the U.S. now 43.2 million in total. That's confirmed cases. That is a significant lowball estimate. The good news is Cases are down 26% across the country compared to two weeks ago. Hospitalizations down 18% over the last two weeks. As that wave, the seasonal wave, hitting the South in particular, continues to recede. The death toll is up. 692,737 Americans have died from COVID over the course of this pandemic. The Dow currently rebounding a bit from yesterday. It's in the green, 242 points up. Currently trading at 34,541, and we will bring you the final number for the day coming up in less than an hour. Without further ado, let's get to our first guest. He is the governor of the great state of Texas. Republican Greg Abbott is back on The Guy Benson Show. And, Governor, great to have you here. Great to be back, Guy. I would like to begin by discussing the situation at the border that you have been concentrating on for obvious reasons now for quite some period of time. Just as a broad question, President Biden seems to attack and demonize you by name or by implication on a regular basis on a host of different issues. And it's his policies and his administration that are failing your state, I think, so glaringly that the president's numbers have completely tanked on the issue of immigration What is your reaction when you see these barbs on a regular basis coming from the White House, coming from a president whose policies and rhetoric are causing the crisis at the border 
and who himself seems to rarely take any questions from the media where he might be pressed on his failures. Well, we, we see it uh, as, as a president who is flailing, in addition to failing, uh, on an issue that may be the most important issue in the United States of America right now. Uh, and he's doing absolutely nothing about it. It is a glaring issue, uh, the fact uh, that apparently in his entire lifetime, but definitely during his time in public service, he has not even been to the border. He doesn't know what he's talking about down there, uh, and he's clueless. However, despite being clueless about it, he is imposing these open border policies. He's doing it to try to advance the agenda of people like Ocasio-Cortez. And I think one reason why he's afraid to talk about it is because he really has no answer to the danger uh, that he's brought into the United States. Just moments before coming on your show, I saw uh, a comment by uh, Secretary Mayorkas who said that uh, he was surprised about the danger about the caused by the number of people coming across the border with COVID. The president and his Secretary of Homeland Security, they themselves are surprised, meaning that they do not know what's really going on with regard to importing COVID into the United States of America because of their open border policies. This is reckless. Uh, it's dangerous. Uh, they are not following or enforcing the laws of the United States of America, and all of them must be accountable for their uh, policies and for their agenda that ignores the United States laws. Yeah, so this is the thing. They attack you on COVID, for example, and yet here they are admitting that they're not even testing tens of thousands, and I mean, it's really hundreds of thousands every month of illegal immigrants who enter the country, and then thousands of those they simply release into the country without COVID tests, certainly without a vaccine, you know, vaccination requirements. I'm very pro-vaccine. I know you are as well. There's a question about mandates and who should be mandated to take the vaccine. This is something that the federal government, the Biden administration is trying to impose. They are mandating vaccine proof for people, for example, who want to fly into the United States from heavily vaccinated European countries. You got to show that when you show up to enter the country legally. But if you're entering the country illegally at the southern border, no such restrictions or mandates apply. And I think a lot of Americans look at that and cannot help but see a glaring double standard that makes, frankly, no sense. This is a double standard by the Biden administration, but it's, of course, uh, not the first and only uh, double standard they have imposed. But listen, there's some very easy math here. Uh, we, we all know the vaccination rates that we have in the United States, including in the state of Texas. And we, we also know that uh, every other country that these people are coming from and coming through uh, when they cross our border illegally from our southern border, uh, that those countries are far less vaccinated. Mexico, for example, far less vaccinated. COVID is easier spread there. But whether they're coming from Haiti or Colombia or uh, Chile or wherever they're coming from, uh, these people, they're coming from countries and crossing through countries uh, where people are not vaccinated, where COVID is far more rampant. And so it just has to be expected that the people who are coming across our southern border uh, will have COVID at a higher degree than what we have in the United States. And so it is reprehensible. It is reckless. Uh, it may be criminal. 
uh, for the fact that they are not testing them. Uh, they're doing nothing about vaccinating them, but they are putting them on different transportation devices. It could be buses, it could be planes, and they are moving them about the United States of America, knowingly exposing their fellow Americans to a disease uh, that the Biden administration supposedly says he's trying to stop, but because of his policies, he's helping to spread in his own country. It's just reprehensible. Yeah, it's, it's an and right. active active pandemic right now. This is not something that you're just sort of, you know, creating out of thin air or trying to demonize immigrants for being diseased. I know that some people on the left say, oh, this is the fear mongering from the right. No, it's it's a global pandemic that has been raging now for the better part of two years. And here's the other report that I saw that I want to get your reaction to, Governor. Fox reported today that the Mexican government has now felt compelled to open, quote, an Olympic sized stadium to deal with the flow of migrants who are coming to America. They're not going to seek refuge in Mexico. They want to come to the United States. As I always say, I don't blame them. I would also want to come here, but they don't have a right to be here. And asylum claims are very rarely bona fide among and, and sort of established and confirmed among a lot of these people who try to claim that sort of status or refugee status. And it's not like the incidents at Del Rio, Texas, and, and that mess is the end of it. It's only the beginning of it because we know that there are tens of thousands of people learning the lessons of what happened in Del Rio and stepping up their efforts to come up through Mexico to the southern border to cross that border and then to wait. And in many cases, they will be released into the United States should the current policy continue. And we see all of this happening in Secretary Mayorkas goes on television and goes before Congress and says the border is secure. You are down at the border all the time. Texas is trying to intercede and take care of a problem that the feds can't or won't. When you see all of that, Governor, and then you hear the Homeland Security chief under President Biden over and over again deny that there's a crisis, refuse to do that to use that word, and in fact to assert that the border is secure – how do you react? We're angry. Uh, and I say we, you know, me, my administration. But uh, listen, I was on the border today in, in Laredo, Texas, and uh, I've been on the border uh, almost on a weekly basis uh, in different parts, obviously Del Rio and other places. Uh, and to give you an example about how angry people are, uh, either all or almost all, of the elected officials in the counties on the border are Democrat, uh, and they came out uh, with a demand yesterday uh, for the Biden administration to compensate them for all the costs they have incurred because of the Biden administration's policies on the border. The Democrats, whether they be office holders or non-office holders who live in the border region, are extremely angry about the Biden administration and their open border policies. But more to the point that you raise. Listen, for whatever reason, Mayorkas thinks that he can lie to the American people and he can lie to the members of Congress because he says that the borders are not open when the American people can see for themselves how open they are. And the reason why they are so open is because the Biden administration has allowed open border policies. And once you allow that and once uh, people from across the entire globe get to see all these people coming into the country and then getting to remain in the country, that will propel even more uh, people trying to get across the border. And so we are, as we speak right now, uh, 
state leaders, myself, and uh, the general in charge of the National Guard, as well as the director in charge of the Texas Department of Public Safety, we are working on strategies to be able to repel these additional caravans of people who will be coming across the border in the coming weeks. We will see replications uh, in multiple regions of the Texas border of exactly what we saw in Del Rio. And Mm -hmm. we can't rely upon the Biden administration to step up and do their job. And you can't really blame them for trying, right? Because the lesson that they're learning is very clear. It's the wrong lesson from my vantage point in a in a country that values its sovereignty. But the lesson has been made abundantly clear by the Biden administration. To your point, Governor, about the anger and the frustration in your state, there's a new Quinnipiac poll that is typically favorable to Democrats. It has President Biden almost 30 points underwater on approval among Texans and down 50 points at the border and his handling of immigration, 50. I mean, that's not just Republicans. That's almost everyone. I believe his approval rating is in the 20s on that issue in your state. One of the reasons might be the demonization of Border Patrol and this smear about whips and whipping that the president himself has embraced and doubled down on. It's been sort of shocking to see that they're willing to fully run with fake news as a deflection to attack the men and women of the Border Patrol. You said on Fox News Sunday a few days ago, if someone gets fired unjustly based on the horseback incident and the so-called whips that didn't exist, you would hire them. They'd have a job in Texas under your administration, under your law enforcement umbrella. We also saw today that they're saying if Border Patrol agents aren't vaccinated by November, they stand to be fired. Would you hire fired Border Patrol agents on that issue if they refuse to get vaccinated? Absolutely. So uh, under Texas law, under the orders that I've established, no government agency in the state of Texas can impose a vaccine mandate. Uh, If there is any Border Patrol officer uh, who gets fired or has to quit, whatever the case may be, because of the vaccine mandate imposed by the Biden administration, Texas would be honored to have them come work for us and be uh, a Border Patrol regiment uh, for the state of Texas. And we, we would appreciate the service. I have worked side by side with these Border Patrol officers for years now. I admire them. I respect them. They are courageous and they are needed. Uh, And if if the Biden administration doesn't want them, by God, the state of Texas does. Last question briefly, Governor. I know you're up for re-election next year in 2022. The Democrats are coming for you. They're going to pour a lot of money into that race. In the lieutenant governor race, there's a new candidate on the Democratic side, a guy called Matthew Dowd, who Used to be a Republican, and then he's become this sort of unhinged leftist on social media. He blocks everyone who disagrees with him. He calls names uh, a real piece of work. But he's thrown his hat in the ring, and he's going after you very hard. Have you heard of this person? Do you have any reaction to Matthew Dowd entering the lieutenant governor's race in your state as a Dem? So uh, I'm I'm not that familiar with with that particular challenge. All I can tell you is what we are seeing on the ground in Texas, and that is there is a movement uh, by some Democrats in Texas uh, who really are former Democrats. They're now officially socialists. And they are advancing the very same agenda that Ocasio-Cortez is advancing. Candidly, you know, uh, because you've heard what Beto said when he ran for uh, the presidency. He was advancing the Ocasio-Cortez brand of socialism. Let me tell you. Way out there. That does not sell in the state of Texas. Uh, If you're against God, if you're against gun, if you're against uh, oil and gas, uh, you're going to be losing uh, in the state of Texas. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that uh, is a pretty blunt and candid way to tell the truth. God, guns, and oil. It, it, those are important things in the state of Texas, and Beto has found himself on uh, the wrong side in certain respects on all three of them. And when it comes to policy issues, it'll be very interesting to watch moving forward. Governor Greg Abbott down there in Texas. We look forward to chatting again next time, sir. I know your hands are full at the moment, so we appreciate you making some time for us here. You take care. God bless. The governor of Texas, Greg Abbott. It's the Guy Benson Show. Much more to come. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson. We've been talking about how some of these BS narratives and talking points just fester and then metastasize. All right, so with the Border Patrol agents, it was horrifying, horrifying, whipping, whips, whips, whipping, horrifying. And on and on it went. Now on $3.5 trillion in spending that the Democrats want, it costs zero dollars. They say zero. There's no cost. Circle back has no choice but to embrace this. She was asked about it. Here's the answer. Cut 17. A lot of the administration officials made a lot about the idea that the the cost of the program is zero, and by that I expect you mean net zero and to the to the Treasury once you sort of take into account the money that's raised versus the money that's spent, correct? Yes, it doesn't. Re- I know none of us are mathematicians, otherwise we wouldn't be here. But yes, but, but, of, of the investments that were proposed, uh, uh, including tax cuts and the pay-fors, including making the tax system more fair, zero. None of us are mathematicians. She says, right, so far be it from her to do the math. Look, I was a journalism major. I am definitely not a math person, but I can tell you with extreme confidence that spending $3.5 trillion of government money, taxpayer money, costs $3.5 trillion of government taxpayer money. You don't need to be a mathematician to understand how the English language works and what words mean. They are going to claim that this is deficit neutral. We've explained several times over why we think that is highly unlikely and it's filled with gimmicks and they don't know how they're going to pay for all of it. But that's the claim, at least deficit neutral is not zero cost. And yet that is what they have landed on as their line. And it's just an insult to anyone with half a brain. Oh, we're not, we're not wrong. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Rocket scientists here, so let's not quibble about the word zero and the word cost. Uh-huh. 
Democrats are really struggling. Nancy Pelosi with some flop sweat now on Capitol Hill. We'll explain why when we come back. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Rolling along here, it's the Guy Benson Show on a Wednesday. Let's pick up where we left off. Nancy Pelosi is trying to figure out what to do next. They are supposed to have a vote tomorrow on the bipartisan infrastructure bill in the House of Representatives, and she is really having trouble getting the votes. And I can explain the context of why and what's happening. It almost feels like it's getting worse for her, not better. At the moment, when it comes to wrangling these votes where she's typically very effective and ruthless, but I guess in her desperation, she has also fully embraced this zero cost nonsense. Listen to cut 20. Not about a dollar amount. The dollar amount, as the president has said, is zero. This bill will be paid for. The dollar amount, as the president said, is zero. And the dollar amount and the numbers don't really matter, right? She keeps saying that as well. I regret to inform you, by the way, that when she said the word zero, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi flashed a white nationalist, white supremacy hand gesture. You know, the OK sign that you might say when you are trying to describe something that is zero. We are told by our friends on the left that this is white nationalism. People have been fired for accidentally making this sign. From their regular jobs, Nancy Pelosi flashed it. I wonder what she means by it. Will she be badgered with questions about her disturbing, potentially racist gesture in the middle of a hilarious lie, by the way, that trillions of dollars of spending costs zero? Is this a dog whistle? This is how serious our political discourse has become, where the OK sign is sometimes terribly problematic and other times Uh, Not at all. And the rules are rather confusing to me, which is why I'm asking these questions very earnestly, as you can tell. Here's the deal, though, with what Pelosi's up against. I've used the analogy of a pressure cooker a few times because this has been dragging on for weeks where the progressives want one thing. The more moderate people want another thing. And a lot of it comes down to. Which bill comes first? The moderates want to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill into law signed by the president first. And then we can get to, in their minds, this reconciliation partisan spending bill. and We can figure out what makes sense and what we can support. The progressives are worried that if the moderates kind of get their victory and sign on to this bill with a bunch of Republicans and Biden signs it, okay, yeah, there'll be infrastructure spending. But that might then liberate the moderates to take a harder and more hawkish line when it comes to spending on the Dem-only reconciliation bill. And the progressives want to spend as much money as humanly possible. They believe that $3.5 trillion is not nearly enough. In their mind, that's the compromise low number. That's the floor to them, not the ceiling. I saw some polling from Echelon Insights. Just yesterday that showed a plurality of Americans think 
3.5 trillion is too much money. And the percentage who believe it's too little money to be spent is in the single digits. That's the fringe. Right? It's like the people who were against Iron Dome. This is a loud but extremely influential left-wing fringe that is growing in their power and leverage within the Democratic Party. And so what those progressives, what the left-wingers are saying is, and Pelosi was on their side for a while. She said, we're not going to do one without the other. These two bills are linked. And the moderate said, no, we want the bipartisan bill done first. It's already passed the Senate with almost 70 votes. Let's just take that win and move to the next thing. But the progressives are paranoid, maybe rightly so, that they're not going to get all their money as much as they want if this other bill passes first. And that has been the crux of the problem for Pelosi. And now Pelosi seems to have abandoned her previous position, which was these two are linked and one is held hostage to the other. She now wants to have a vote first on infrastructure tomorrow, the bipartisan bill which is the opposite of what she told everyone for months. This is a climb down. This is a retreat from Speaker Pelosi, actually. And the progressives are so mad about it. Bernie Sanders is tweeting. He's telling his friends in the House, if this is what happens, kill the bill. Vote it down. Kill a key part of the Biden agenda because it might prevent us from spending even trillions more than is likely. That's the strategy, quote, uh, quote, unquote, the strategy from the left. Whereas the moderates have you know, said basically the opposite. The pressure cooker analogy comes in because Pelosi's like, look, we have been just snagged and snarled in this internal debate. Republicans are not even part of this conversation at all. This is all Democrats. And we go round and round and round and Manchin and Cinema, they won't say what they want in the Senate and our progressives are angry and they're moderates. You know, there are threats being made here. I'm just going to put a bill on the floor and dare these people to vote it down. An actual vote will focus the mind. Failure could be an option and that will scare people into finally coming around and doing the thing that I want them to do. I think that was the, the risk that she took. That was the gamble from Speaker Pelosi. And that is supposed to happen tomorrow, this vote. But progressives are now whipping against the vote. There are dozens of them who say that they're going to vote no at the behest of Bernie Sanders and other socialists. So as it stands right now, Pelosi doesn't have the votes. I think the let's all come together because failure is not an option approach. Right. That tactic might be blowing up in her face. It also doesn't help that Joe Biden is doing next to nothing. Right. He's sitting there. He's taking phone calls. He's inviting people to the White House. He's having these conversations, but he's not taking a side. He's not taking her side. He's not saying, look, I'm the president. Cut this stuff out. Here's what we're going to do in this order and why. It's my agenda. You keep talking about build back better. That's my stupid slogan. Here's what it means. I'm in charge here. He has not done that. And so they're just kind of floating along into tomorrow. And I find it very interesting what Pelosi tried to do today. Pelosi's now saying, well, the progressives might want the reconciliation vote to come first, but it's going to be the infrastructure vote tomorrow. But maybe we can get the legislative language ready for the reconciliation spending bill, which would be sort of like 
a, a goodwill down payment for the progressives, showing that we're serious and maybe build a little bit of trust. So we'll have uh, sort of an agreement on what the legislative language would look like for the reconciliation bill, and that could give them enough of you know cover, some face-saving mechanism to then say, okay, that's satisfactory to us, and so we'll vote for the infrastructure bill on Thursday. Well, the chairwoman of the Progressive Caucus in the House just minutes ago went on TV and said, no, we hear your offer and your idea, Speaker Pelosi, and we reject it. We want a vote on reconciliation first. That's our position. It has not changed. And you've got members of the squad saying, oh, we will absolutely kill this bill if this is what Pelosi decides to do. If she's going to put up for a vote tomorrow, we're going to kill it. Rashida Tlaib, I believe, called it a betrayal. So things are going well for Nancy. You know, Chuck Schumer's got his own problems over in the Senate, but we're just focused on the House at the moment. Pelosi also, and to me, this is fascinating and potentially tipping her hand a little bit. Pelosi today made sure that everyone knew when she was asked about it. Yes, actually. Why? Yes, I do have the power to unilaterally delay or push off this vote tomorrow if I see fit. So the big deadline, this artificial deadline that she created for the purpose of building pressure and galvanizing action, if it's not going to actually succeed at that, she might pull the plug on the vote and this must this much anticipated vote tomorrow on Capitol Hill might not happen. Pelosi right now has to make a decision. Let's say she doesn't have the votes or she's not sure if she has the votes tomorrow. Does she punt and say, never mind, uh, we're having great conversations, but let's uh, let's move this to another day. Which would only add to the Democrats and disarray narrative. Or does she say, you know what, to hell with all of this. We're taking the damn vote. If you defy me, progressives, let's see how that goes for you. We'll kill a bill and then what? I'm not sure which direction she's going to take. I don't know if she knows which direction she's going to take, but it is very interesting to watch. And I suppose we'll get some answer tomorrow. The New York Times reporting earlier today, liberal Democrats dug in against voting for the trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill this week, angrily rejecting a decision by Speaker Pelosi to push the bill forward before the party could resolve bitter disagreements on the sprawling social policy and climate package. And here is that quote that I referenced from Rashida Tlaib. She said, to bring the infrastructure plan to a vote without reconciliation first, quote, is a betrayal. We will hold the line and vote it down. I have to admit this is kind of fun to watch. I don't know how it's going to resolve, but it's kind of fun to watch. Because over on the Senate side, you've got at least two senators who are happy to be lightning rods. They are from states that are not deep blue states. They don't really care about what the progressive left thinks of them. Joe Manchin in a state where you know Donald Trump crushed Joe Biden by, what was it, 40 points? And I think deep down the Democrats realize, well, no one's going to win in that state on our side except for Joe Manchin, so they cut him some slack. They are so mad at Kirsten Cinema because in their mind – she should be one of them, right? She's sort of funky. She dresses in a hip kind of way. She's a member of the LGBTQ community. She kind of looks like a progressive. She used to be much more progressive earlier in her career. She's from a purple state. 
And in some ways, she's been tougher and more resolved on this than Manchin has, and they hate her for it. I mean, they are going after Kirsten Cinema so hard. And she's sort of, uh, and here's a dated reference, honey badgering this thing. She does not care. Here's a quote from today just minutes ago. Within the hour, a reporter found Kirsten Cinema on Capitol Hill. I have to say, this is this is fun. Uh, what do you say to progressives who are frustrated that they don't know where you are? Response from Senator Cinema: I'm in the Senate. Then the journalist: Yeah, but there are progressives in the Senate also frustrated. They don't know where you are either. Cinema: I'm clearly right in front of the elevator. So she's just trolling. The reporter means, where are you on the, you know, the spending amounts and the top line dollar amounts of the bill? She's taking the question literally on purpose. She's being obtuse on purpose, saying these progressives are mad. They don't know where you are. She says, I'm standing right here in the Senate in front of the elevator. Are you blind? It's trolling. And I think that's her message. And I mean, the responses to that exchange from the left, these people are losing their minds. You would think she's a Republican the way they hate her so much. We're going to take her out. She's going to lose re-election. We're going to primary her. Go for it. Go for it. Republicans seem to eat their own far too often. It'd be helpful if the Democrats started to do the same thing, quite frankly. But I think by that sort of flippant, trollish response, she is sending a message that she knows what she wants, what she doesn't want. She's not going to be pushed around on all oh, this completely phony, made-up, fabricated deadlines, right? All of this passion and all of this, you know, anxiety and urgency, it's completely made up by the Democrats. There's a deadline to fund the government. That's on Friday. There's a deadline on the debt ceiling. They could do those things easily and on their own if they wanted to. The Democrats could. The infrastructure bill, she's like, hey, I helped uh, negotiate that. I'd like for it to pass. I've already voted for it in the Senate. You do your thing over there in the House if you want to. And then on the reconciliation, all this other Democrat spending, there's no cliff. There's no deadline. This is not essential spending at all. This is Democrats looking at and looking down the barrel of inflation. Saw the Fed chairman say that inflation actually could be sticking around longer than expected. So maybe not so transitory. As the White House would say, Americans are feeling the pinch of inflation and the Democrats are saying, well, we must spend trillions of dollars. And cinema's kind of just shrugging like, eh, do we? And all the pressure campaigns and all the angry tweets in the world, at least for now, are not moving her. So that's a problem over on the Senate side, in addition to what Pelosi's dealing with in the House. So. If you want to say that the Democrats are in disarray, I think you're on pretty solid ground right now. And we shall all wait and see what happens tomorrow when Nancy Pelosi has set up a vote that could be one of the most embarrassing failures. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show. 
Thank you very much for listening. So I was starting to mention how this could be one of the biggest failures that Speaker Pelosi has ever suffered as Speaker of the House. And she set herself up for this into tomorrow. I just saw that Senator Manchin, one of the quote-unquote problematic Democrats on the moderate side, he said it is not possible for an agreement on reconciliation on that bill to happen before tomorrow's vote. So they are between a rock and a hard place, and no one seems to be budging. Senator Mitch McConnell, on the Republican side, the leader of the Republicans, Cocaine Mitch, he took to the floor today and gave a speech talking about all of this. I'm sure he is enjoying watching his counterparts flail and flounder. Here's what he said in his substantive critique of what the Democrats are proposing in Cut 22. President Biden recently tried to suggest that because they want to pair their reckless spending with their biggest tax hike in half a century, that somehow makes the entire package free. The president said it's free. Democrats want to jack up America's tax rates, drain money from people's pockets, spend it on socialism, and then say the whole thing nests out to zero dollars. This might be the best encapsulation of Washington Democrat thinking I've ever heard. I mean, it's just so preposterous. You have to almost laugh at it, except it isn't laughable. It isn't risible when the people who are repeating the line are dead serious about getting their way. I don't think that they actually believe this, right? Jen Psaki does not believe that trillions of dollars cost zero dollars. They're just saying it. Speaker Pelosi, I mean, who knows what she actually believes, but she's saying it with conviction, hoping that enough dum-dums out there decide, oh, that, that sounds good to me, let's do it. There just aren't nearly enough people who are that idiotic, and I think that they betray their contempt and disdain for the American people by even attempting a talking point this brazen. I mean, tomorrow is going to be absolutely fascinating. And we will have you covered here on the Guy Benson Show from the belly of the beast, from the beltway, the swamp. When we come back, U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, who's a military veteran, she asked some tough questions yesterday during Afghanistan hearings. We will get her reaction and analysis on what she heard from the defense secretary and those generals when we come back for our next hour of the Guy Benson Show, straight ahead. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Our middle hour is now underway here on the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Very happy to have you here. Thank you always for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. And on the podcast, which is on demand and free around the clock, GuyBensonShow.com for all of the information you could possibly need. Fox News Alert. The Dow today, off-session highs, but still up. Closing up 91 points, finishing the day at 34,391. We are privileged now to welcome back to the Guy Benson Show U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, Republican 
of Iowa, the first female combat veteran elected to the U.S. Senate. Her book is Daughter of the Heartland. And, Senator, welcome back. Oh, thanks so much, Guy. It's great to be with you. Well, yesterday there was a much-watched hearing on Capitol Hill in the Senate Armed Services Committee. Of course, you were a part of that hearing with the Secretary of Defense and a number of top military generals, and they were all grilled by Republicans and some Democrats on the fiasco, whatever word you want to use, catastrophe that has been the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan you asked some pointed questions. I have some sound, in fact, to play here in just a moment. But before we get to specifics, overall, Senator, as a veteran, as a member of the Senate, as an American citizen, were you satisfied with the answers that you heard yesterday? I guess I would say I am large in part in satisfied with the answers that were given. And we knew, um, even before I went into this hearing, I knew that I would be saddened by the responses that I heard. Um, one, because the, the person that I find solely accountable for the debacle that happened in Afghanistan was not in front of us and will not be held accountable. And that is the President of the United States, Joe Biden. This falls on his shoulders. He is the one that decided to ignore the advice given by his top military officials. Um, our generals made it very clear that they would have left that minimal number of troops in Afghanistan. And at any point, President Joe Biden could have listened to those generals and avoided this disaster, which included the death of 13 American service members. He is the one that chose not to. Well, and not only did he choose not to, and we made this point yesterday, he's commander in chief. The buck stops with him. It's his prerogative. If the experts and the military leaders want to tell him, sir, we recommend X, Y, and Z, he can say, no, I'm in charge. We're going to go with A, B, and C. That's fine. That's, you know, his job, and he can live with the consequences, good and bad. What is disturbing, I think, to a lot of people, Senator, is that he told the country on ABC News that he did not receive those recommendations from these generals. And then they testified in sworn testimony under oath yesterday that, yes, indeed, they did, and he heard them. That is a pretty direct contradiction of an assertion made by this president to the public in the middle of the crisis. Absolutely. And what we have heard through a series of these hearings is that the president has lied over and over again to the American people. Um, you just pointed out one lie that he he said that he had not been given that advice to leave people on the ground in Afghanistan. That is untrue. It was confirmed by all three of our witnesses yesterday that, yes, that was the information that had been passed to the president. We heard the president on August 20th tell the American people that there is no al-Qaeda left in Afghanistan. We know that to be false as well. Uh, the president had stated, we will not take our military out. We will not leave, you know, we will not take them out until a Americans are out. We will not leave Americans behind. That is another falsehood. Um, so lie after lie after lie. And the fact that this president continues to lie and says, that, oh, I take responsibility, yet he's 
pointing the finger at everyone else, his military yeah. generals. He's pointing the finger at the previous administration. You know, no, he he won't accept his failures. He wants to pin it on others. But unfortunately, the truth is coming back to bite him. And we saw that in, in clear form yesterday during the Senate Armed Services Committee. And we see well, it again today in the House very- Armed Services Committee. It's very obvious to me, Senator, that not only are these failures glaring and undeniable, I think the White House, deep down, these officials and his advisors, maybe the president himself, they seem to understand it because they are doing everything they can to shield him from questions on these subjects. He takes very, very few questions, even with so many very serious things happening and multiple crises concurrently, he will sometimes appear before the cameras, but not take questions from reporters. Now, you got into something and really focused on one issue during some of your questioning yesterday that goes beyond just the president's dishonesty, as you've described it, his lying. And again, if he wants to defend the policy of withdrawal, that's fine. You should be able to do it on the merits without deceiving people without bending or completely disregarding the truth. Like That's sort of where I come from on this. But there's also the broader implication beyond what the president did or didn't do, if he's telling the truth or not, or the politics of it, the betrayals. All of that is extremely important. Another important question is, does this withdrawal, the way we did it or the fact that it happened at all, does it make us safer or less safe? And that is very much up for debate. You tried to get to that question with General McKenzie and with General Milley yesterday. Let's listen to cut 11. This is part of your exchange with those generals. Listen. I didn't recognize that al-Qaeda was gone. Um, General McKenzie, is al-Qaeda gone? Senator, al-Qaeda is still, it maintains a presence in Afghanistan. And uh, Secretary Blinken had said on August 22nd that the threat of terrorism metastasized out of Afghanistan a long time ago. General McKenzie, is there any terrorist threat in Afghanistan now? There is a, we see, what we see is ISIS newly rejuvenated with the prisoners that came out of Parwan and Polycharki prison. They're, you know, they're gathering their strength. We have yet to see how that's going to manifest itself, but we know for a certainty that they do aspire to attack us in our homeland. And we know the same for al-Qaeda. So that threat, it has metastasized and it is resident in other parts of the world. My, in my part of the world, though, it certainly is in Afghanistan. I would say that the al-Qaeda threat globally is still there. Senator, we just lived through the 20th anniversary of 9-11. The question you were getting at to me fundamentally seems extremely important. It is. And, uh, you know, we know that President Biden's catastrophic failure not only put American citizens and our Afghan allies in harm's way, but it now makes us less safe in America today. And what we heard there, General McKenzie, General Milley, um, they could not assure us that ISIS and al-Qaeda wouldn't reconstitute in Afghanistan. Uh, General McKenzie had indicated al-Qaeda was still in Afghanistan. Um, It goes against what uh, President Biden was trying to spread, uh, you know, earlier in the year, and we still do have a threat. And we know that we have to focus very heavily on counterterrorism now, and yet we don't have the people on the ground in Afghanistan to deter those threats or to provide a safe guidance for over-the-horizon strikes. We don't have that anymore. Thank you, President Joe Biden. 
those are perhaps medium and longer term concerns about U.S. national security and the ability of terrorists to find a safe haven and build and grow and train and plot in the more immediate term. I think many of us are still irate and horrified about the Americans and U.S. allies left behind in Afghanistan due to this utterly, totally botched and incompetent, I mean, truly idiotic, quote unquote, plan, if you can even call it that, on the withdrawal, on the evacuations. Uh, A question or two was asked about this. Secretary Austin seemed to basically put that squarely on the State Department, saying this was the State Department that was in charge. They made the decisions here. Of course, it all ultimately goes up to the president. But, Senator, I remember during sort of the teeth of the mess with people clinging to airplanes and falling to their deaths and and you know, the airport security dis- disintegrating and deteriorating and, and everything happening the way that it was, Taliban beating people in the streets, you had people at the White House and some in the media insisting this was the greatest, most dramatic evacuation in the history of humanity and really, it was a big success. In fact, that's what Joe Biden called it. He said it was a success talking about the evacuation. Here we have the defense secretary pointing the finger at another department, the State Department, when it comes to the obvious lack of success, the terrible planning or lack thereof when it comes to the evacuation. And I feel like that blame game totally obliterates the fantasy that this was a success that the president tried to foist upon the American public as a talking point. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I I would say that um, airlifting 120,000-plus people out of a country is incredible in that short amount of time. But what would make it a success is if it had been done safely, and the evacuation of those personnel actually included all of our American citizens as well as our SIV, the Special Immigrant Visa applicants. Prioritizing those people earlier. Yes, and what happened was this haphazard and hasty withdrawal with very little attention paid to American citizens and those that had assisted us over the course of the past 20 years. Instead, we airlifted a whole lot of people that we know very little about. And this is one area the State Department had assured us that people will be vetted before they come to the United States. So I know that we have many other third countries that are holding these refugees. We need to make sure that they are vetted before they come to the United States. But describing this as an extraordinary success is way out of bounds. You know, is it fantastical that they they got so many people out? Yes. But let's let's put those standards into place. Who did we airlift out? And who do we leave Um, behind? Who did we strand? You know, yeah. Yeah. Who did we betray? And I'm glad, by the way, Senator, I was going to correct myself because we want to be accurate on this program. I want to accurately quote the president. He didn't merely call the withdrawal execution a success. He called it an extraordinary success, as you pointed out, which I think is is just worse because no one or virtually no one believes that. But if that is what he decides his feedback loop is saying and he's not going to get challenged on it because he doesn't put himself in a position to be challenged on this on a regular basis, it calls into question uh, his judgment, his capacity overall 
as president of the United States and as commander in chief. Senator Ernst, before I let you go, just a question about politics. It's not just Afghanistan, because, I mean, look, the credibility issue, I think, speaks for itself. The The confidence of the public has been lost. I don't know if it's irreparable, but it has been uh, diminished substantially uh, from this president in, in the eyes of the American people, including many Iowans. But it's not just Afghanistan. There is a whole host of issues contributing to the president's uh, problems that he's now facing and the headwinds on his approval rating and confidence of the American people. A recent poll came out in your state from the Des Moines Register. It's sort of the gold standard public poll, as you're very familiar with it, of course, that showed President Biden now with a 31 percent approval rating. He's underwater by more than 30 percentage points in the state of Iowa. You understand Iowa voters why is President Biden struggling that significantly in your state? Yes, and as you rightfully pointed out, it's a number of issues. Afghanistan is extremely important to Iowans. We have sent many a young man and woman um, into Afghanistan to fight for our country's values, protect our citizens and our homeland. They did that admirably. Um, so Afghanistan is a big problem for the president in the state of Iowa. But you look beyond that. Look at inflation. Look at the extreme spending policies that he and Democrats have embraced that will hurt Iowans in the long run as their taxes go up and their dollar goes less far. Um, if you look at the vaccine mandates that are coming out of the White House, you know, Iowans truly believe Believe in a freedom to choose, you know, what they are putting into their bodies, what they're not. Um, but there are so many issues uh, that we have with this president. Of course, you know, we could talk about renewable fuels and how he made promises to the farmers and our ethanol producers that he would be a champion for biofuels. And yet we expect the White House to cut uh, the volumes of, of ethanol and biodiesel and, and uh, well, other renewable fuels significantly. He's breaking every promise that he has made to the American people. And so that's why he's so far underwater. 31% approval rating. I mean, that's extremely sad. And you know what it does? It gives us a leg up in 2022. And I fully expect that it puts us on a much easier glide path to regain control in the House and the Senate. And of course, um, unlimited opportunity coming up in 2024 for the White House. U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, a Republican from Iowa, her colleague from Iowa, Chuck Grassley, is running for re-election, he announced, so I'm sure she's fired up about that. Senator Ernst, we always appreciate your time here. We look forward to next time. You betcha. Thanks, Guy. Joni Ernst on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. I want to talk a little bit more just for a moment about this spending spree, this orgy of spending the Democrats are talking about here in Washington, D.C. They want to pay for it with massive tax increases, and there's going to be borrowed spending. I mean, they're, they're lying about this. They're saying it's deficit neutral, therefore it costs zero dollars. It's all, it's all nonsense. 
What's also nonsense is the proposition, this is all just very popular. The American people are clamoring for this, and it's a political suicide note for these Republicans to be opposing it, and all the Democrats just get on board because this is what the American people want, need, and desire right now. I referenced the Echelon Insights poll from yesterday, earlier in today's show. It showed a plurality. Most Americans said, this is too much money. Only a tiny fraction agree with the progressives that it's too little money. Among independents, a majority said it's too much money. Now there's been some polling released in some battleground districts, swing districts, where there will be key congressional races next year. In Iowa's 3rd District, in New Jersey's 7th District, and Virginia's 2nd District. In all three of those districts, the bill is underwater. Majorities oppose the bill in those battleground districts, and that's despite question wording about this proposal that is extremely generous. President Biden and Democrats in Congress have proposed $3.5 trillion that they say would strengthen the social safety net, invest in climate policy, expand Medicare, child care and paid leave, create universal pre-K, and make incentives for green energy adoption. Knowing this, do you favor or oppose the $3.5 trillion bill and a majority? I mean, that is a very friendly question wording with none of the you know, tax increases or any of the other negatives. Nevertheless, in those swing districts, a majority in each of them said no, we're against it. That also has to make the Democrats sweat because they're up against public opinion in certain cases and a timeline here that is getting more precarious by the day. Some sound from governor debates you want to hear next. Don't go anywhere. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Guy Benson. Halfway through the show and halfway through the week on the Guy Benson Show. And I would like to play a few sound bites now from two gubernatorial debates that happened last night. There are two states that will be electing governors in November. New Jersey, my home state, and Virginia, my adoptive home state. And both debates were interesting and had some fiery moments. I want to start actually with New Jersey because there was one exchange that was rather heated between the Republican, Jack Cittarelli, we've had him on the show, and the incumbent governor, Phil Murphy. And at one point, Murphy was talking about people dying and how serious that was. And Chitterelli, the Republican, brought up the nursing home issue, which plagued New Jersey as well. COVID deaths in nursing homes. Murphy made the exact same fatal error that Cuomo did in New York. Now, they didn't cover it up the way Cuomo did. But the policy itself was lethal. Here's how that sounded in Cut 31. If you want to talk about disqualifiers, if taxes are your issue, we're probably not your state. Or saying, or saying that you wanted to make New Jersey the California of the East Coast, I consider those disqualifiers. Yeah. These people died, Assemblyman. People died. You mean like the people in the nursing homes in Tropical Storm Ida? I think, I think one of the sort of baseline requirements for this job is you have to tell the truth. I would agree. Okay. I would okay. agree. A little Thunderdome action there with the crowd yelling and booing and cheering and all of that. But one thing that we heard over and over again from Governor Murphy, the Democrat, was Trump. 
Trump, 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 Trump. It's what the Democrats are trying in bluer states to tie every Republican to Trump who lost those states. And Chitterelli obviously was ready for this one. And he had this quip that I thought was actually pretty funny. Cut 30. If those watching at home are playing that drinking game where you got to take a shot every time you hear Trump, I suggest they stop real soon because they're going to be bombed real soon. Hear that, Christine? Don't play that drinking game. Because even for you, it's going to be too much. Now, in Virginia, there was a similar dynamic with a very interesting coda that I will mention in just a second. But the Glenn Youngkin campaign, the Republican campaign, put together a little quick ad or a little quick video online about the obsession with Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, invoking the name Donald Trump repeatedly cut 29. There's an over and under tonight on how many times you're going to say Donald Trump. Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Donald Thank Trump, you, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump. He keeps invoking right. Trump. The only person invoking Trump is you. He's been trying to make his Republican opponent um, a clone of Donald Trump, but that hasn't really worked so far. What do you say? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen is what I counted in that clip. Terry McAuliffe endlessly talking about Donald Trump, the former president of the United States, with the effort being to tell Northern Virginia moderates that this guy, Glenn Youngkin, is basically just Trump. And so be very afraid and vote for me because I'm the Democrat and I'm not Trump. And at one point, he actually accuses Youngkin of mentioning Trump and Youngkin fires back. Yeah, the only person doing that is you. And the tape doesn't lie. We heard it over and over again. I think I said 14 times there, 14 or 15 Here's what's also fascinating, the follow-up to this. Terry McAuliffe could not keep Donald Trump's name out of his mouth all night as a strategy. You know what name Terry McAuliffe said zero times last night? Joe Biden, the sitting president of the United States and a member of his party with whom he has campaigned and done events, by the way. Joe Biden is all in for Terry McAuliffe, and Terry McAuliffe is all in for Joe Biden, but... Some of those events and all of that mutual admiration, that was happening before the bottom fell out for Joe Biden and his approval ratings. If Biden has a majority disapproval in the country, where you include states like New York and California, in a place like Virginia, I would imagine the internal polls likely show Biden significantly underwater, even in a state that voted for him by a pretty fair margin over Trump. And all of a sudden... Isn't it interesting? Terry McAuliffe, he just has a case of amnesia when it comes to the name of the current president of the United States from his party. He's squeamish. He won't mention that name, Joe Biden. What happened, Terry? Is it just your polls? Because this is who Terry McAuliffe is. He is just a political creature. He's a Clintonite. He's been buddies with the Clintons. He's been their fixer. He was their fixer for years. And yet he's out there talking about, you know, honor. And truth and warning against corruption and all this stuff. Give me a break. He's just a political hack who's been in politics his entire life. In fact, FoxNews.com had this story. Some of McAuliffe's ads this year in 2021, they just recycled the exact same footage that they used in 2013. Like, hey, Terry McAuliffe looks a little better, a little younger there. Oh, it was eight years ago. That would be why. There's just nothing new. It's just a reheated, warmed over 
Democrat hack running for governor in Virginia in a very, very close race. He can't say the words Donald Trump enough, the former president, but the current president who's presiding over inflation and this struggling economy and a national humiliation and disgrace in Afghanistan and a complete meltdown at the southern border. And the list goes on and on and on. McAuliffe just, gosh, can't find a reason to say that name. I wonder, will he do an event with Biden again or is he going to wait to see what the polling looks like? What does that cross tab look like in Virginia? Or is he going to wait for his focus groups to tell him, OK, it's safe to talk about Biden in this corner of this county, but don't do it in that county. No, in that county down there, you're going to have your Democratic deep pocketed dark money buddies running fake attack ads against the Republicans pretending to be from a right leaning perspective. Oh, he's not good enough on the Second Amendment. It's a giant voter suppression scheme that the Democrats are attempting in southern and western Virginia to keep Republicans at home. Because they're worried about Terry McAuliffe and they're worried about how close these polls are. There was another moment last night that is potentially and again, you don't want to blow any one thing out of proportion. And sometimes a bunch of political people will all say, oh, my gosh, this is a game changing moment. And it ends up not being right. So I think some humility here is worthwhile. But in a potential defining moment in this debate last night, there was an exchange between the candidates about the role of parents in education. Glenn Youngkin said this in Cut 25. This is the Republican. You believe school systems should tell children what to do. I believe parents should be in charge of their kids' education. Terry McAuliffe, in a soundbite that is already being blasted everywhere and, in fact, is embedded in a brand-new 30-second TV ad from the Republicans, said this in Cut 27. Here's the money bite. Yeah, I've snapped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. This is a guy who is totally face first in the tank for teachers unions, teachers unions that kept Virginia kids like we saw in New York and New Jersey and Massachusetts and Connecticut and Pennsylvania and Illinois, California, the whole West Coast and other places across the country, almost all controlled by Democrats. Terry McAuliffe was one of those Democrats on board with the teachers unions who were keeping Virginia kids locked out of schools, locked out of classrooms, learning, quote unquote, remotely. That basically all of the data now shows was a catastrophic disaster educationally, emotionally, in terms of mental health for these kids, their development in life. Their academic progress, all of it, it was one of the biggest and most indefensible policy blunders that I've seen in a very long time based on no science. You could say maybe early on we didn't know a lot. Let's just be extra careful in the spring of 2020. But in the fall, when schools started back up and they were still closed and remained closed for an entire school year in many of these places – That was the teachers unions overruling science and harming children. And these are the people that Terry McAuliffe is fully behind and they are fully behind him. And you've had parents, meanwhile, who are upset in northern Virginia in particular about some of the things that are being done. You've got woke school boards trying to rename and in fact renaming schools named after people like Thomas Jefferson because it's too problematic, supposedly, in Virginia for crying out loud, the home of Thomas Jefferson. Can't have him. Then you've got other schools that have had merit-based processes 
for admission thrown out for equity reasons. A lot of parents in those areas and involved in those schools very upset. You've got the critical race theory stuff, which is absolute poison. I'm not saying that we can't teach about some of the flaws of our country. That's history. That's reality. We should not shy away from reality. Good, bad, ugly, and fabulous. There's a lot of it in this country. We're still the greatest country, despite our flaws and warts, in my opinion. But when we focus on the flaws, overblow the downsides, teach kids that the country is rotten to the core, and inculcate and indoctrinate them with this idea that their skin color or race is essential to everything else. In fact, Trump's in many cases, other considerations. It is central to their identity, central to society, something that we need to be fixated and obsessed over. That is poison. And a lot of parents in Virginia are sick of it. There was also this issue involving sexually explicit materials in libraries at some schools without the parents being made aware that this was even happening. And when these two candidates on stage last night went back and forth, one of them said, I believe parents should be in charge of their kids' education. And the other one said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. The teachers' union certainly 100% lock, stock, and barrel is behind one of those guys. And it's the second quote from Democrat Terry McAuliffe, with Glenn Youngkin saying, actually, the parents are central to this. McAuliffe sneering at parents, which is de facto the elite Democratic position right now. And absolutely the position held by these powerful, selfish teachers unions that have done so much harm already to these kids. And they have the audacity to continue to dump on parents who just want a little bit of involvement and accountability after, in many cases, their kids couldn't even go to school last year. To me, this is a very bright line in not just the Virginia campaign, but a bunch of campaigns across the country. Do you want to be on the team of the teachers unions? the adults looking out for themselves and a bunch of political agendas, or do you want to be on the side of parents and children and actual education? So McAuliffe said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. In a very quick turnaround, the Yunkin campaign put out, as I mentioned, a TV ad, a 30-second spot. I suspect we'll be seeing this a lot in the D.C. area, as we should be. This, this is hot off the presses today. Cut 26. We watched parents so upset because there was such sexually explicit material in the library. I decided to check the titles at my child's school. Both of these books include pedophilia. Graphically describes engaging in fellatio with male minors. You vetoed the bill that would have informed parents that they were there. Yeah, I stopped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. I'm Glenn Young, candidate for governor, and I sponsored this ad. This is just about informing parents of what's going on in schools, which I think a lot of teachers unions don't want. In fact, they were complaining about it during the failed experiment of distance learning and virtual learning. They hated the fact that parents could actually look over their kids' shoulders and see what was being taught, quote unquote, to them on their laptop. They don't want that. They don't want these nosy parents hearing what's happening. One more thought on this whole front separating it out from the governor's race in Virginia and going to the other coast, California, which is a leading indicator of where the left is headed. If you want to know where the progressive movement and other blue states are going, look first to California. We have now seen in the last few months teachers unions in some of the biggest school districts in California, San Diego and San Francisco, sign on to insane anti-Israel agenda items as part of their platform. 
where the San Diego Teachers Union just voted not to recognize legitimacy of Israel as a country and calling it, you know, bigoted and apartheid and all of these smears, just adopting them. Now, why a teachers union, people teaching your kids should be passing any resolutions about Israel is beyond me. But this is what they do. They're a bunch of activist left wingers who want to indoctrinate your kids. This is why parents have to be involved in their kids' education, despite what Terry McAuliffe thinks in Virginia. San Francisco, their teachers union said, yes, we endorsed BDS, the boycott, divestment and sanction of Israel, which is an anti-Semitic movement. Don't ask me. Ask Chuck Schumer who says that. This is anti-Semitism because there is one teeny tiny Jewish state in the entire world. Look at the whole globe. One little speck the size of New Jersey is where Jews have a Jewish state where they can actually defend themselves and protect themselves after so much persecution and so many horrors through the years. And here you have people, bigots from around the world, who cannot stop hating and loathing and thinking about that one little country. And apparently that bigotry is alive and well among public school teachers unions on the left coast. The types of teachers unions who are standing shoulder to shoulder with Terry McAuliffe in Virginia in that governor's race. Oh, and by the way, he also has touted the endorsement of NARAL, the abortion extremists in Virginia, because he himself is an abortion extremist. They have also endorsed defunding the police. I don't know what an abortion group is doing talking about defunding the police, but it's just a, an alphabet soup of progressive nonsense. So the abortion people are also in favor of defunding the police. I guess they want innocent people not protected anywhere. And this is a group that he has championed and said, I am excited to have their endorsement, a defund the police radical left wing group. This is why I've been focusing so much on the Virginia election, not just because it's in my backyard here, but because it's a 2021 election that has implications looking ahead into 2022. It is neck and neck right now. And I love that new ad from the Yunkin campaign. They have been stepping up their game as this election enters the final stretch. We'll have you covered here on the Guy Benson Show. More next. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As we return to The Guy Benson Show, our buddy Jason Rance out in Seattle, noting this on Twitter, there's a woman named Nicole Thomas Kennedy, who is the candidate who won their primary out in Seattle to be Seattle city attorney, so a prosecutor. She is vowing to not prosecute many crimes, and she has been attacking police on her Twitter feed, saying that cops shouldn't get COVID vaccines and, in fact, should, quote, eat some COVID-laced bleep and lose their jobs. She's calling for the eradication and defunding of the police. That would be a prosecutor out there because things are going so well in Seattle. Of course, we talked last segment about Terry McAuliffe and his group that he's celebrating an endorsement from. They're calling for defunding the police. Gosh, what could go wrong? Well, here's what could go wrong. Wall Street Journal today. Homicides in the United States rose by nearly 30 percent in 2020, the biggest single year spike since the feds began collecting data 60 years ago. 
The editorial board writes, no one factor explains this criminal surge, but it's no coincidence that the bloodshed increased as cities slashed police budgets. Progressive prosecutors demanded leniency and eliminated bail for criminals and jails and prisons released thousands of lawbreakers amid the COVID-19 outbreak. This is the vision of law enforcement, quote unquote, that the hard left is demanding. And if they get their way as they continue to take over the Democratic Party, it is literally quite dangerous for citizens. This will be an issue for sure in the upcoming elections, as it should be. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is straight ahead. The Dems are in disarray on Capitol Hill. More details coming up. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Wednesday. Thank you for listening every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Glad to have you along. The podcast is free every day at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcast. should you miss a moment of the show as it airs, which, of course, we always recommend listening as it airs every afternoon. The happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. I like the white can which is zero sugar, slightly fewer calories. The original blue, also hard to beat. little extra gin kick in the black can. You've got options. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. You can find out where it's sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com, our fantastic sponsor for the happy hour. With us now is Congressman Michael Burgess. He's a Republican from the 26th Congressional District in Texas, and, Congressman, it's good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Well, guys, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So the Democrats are gearing up, as I mentioned earlier in the show, for potentially a very significant vote in the House tomorrow on a bipartisan infrastructure bill. But they are really at each other's throats about another bill, which used to be tied to the infrastructure bill. The progressives still want it to be tied. It's unclear how this is all going to play out. But that other bill, so-called reconciliation, that's the package. It's a Democrat-only, partisan, massive tax-and-spend binge. We've been discussing bits and pieces of it here on the show in the broader context of all of these moving parts that Democratic leadership is trying to handle right now, perhaps this week. You are in a unique position to understand inside and out the intricacies of what's actually in the bill as it advances, because you've been watching it firsthand from the very beginning, from the conception of this legislation. You're the Republican leader designee to the budget committee. You've been watching it extremely closely from a Republican perspective. In your view, sir, what do people need to know? Yeah, well, first off, I I don't get the mental image of being present at the conception of this thing is probably more than I can handle this close to lunch. 
but <laughs> that aside, uh, look, I'm on the I'm on the Energy and Commerce Committee. Energy and Commerce had about a half a trillion dollars of the policies that are in the alleged bill. I say alleged because it hasn't been written yet. Remember, Pelosi came out the other day and said we have a framework. Um, I don't know if people understand that a framework is not the same thing as having a bill. What that means is when she gets enough of her members peeled off to get to the magic number of 218, which is what it takes to pass a bill in the House, she stops, and that's going to be the bill. Um, I'm also on, as you mentioned, on the Budget Committee and, and then on the Rules Committee. So this thing was marked up on uh, via a uh, a, a, a conference call, a Zoom call, a, a WebEx call for three days on energy and commerce. A lot of policies uh, Republicans tried to modify. Every amendment was struck down. And then in the middle of the night, the Budget Committee has a hearing, if you want to call it that. Not a hearing. It was a markup. It was the, the actual bill being marked up by a Zoom call on Saturday night. I've never heard of such a thing. But that's what happened. And you know, people could be forgiven if they haven't been paying attention to this, but it is a massive, massive spending bill. The guy, what we're doing right now, I'm just off the floor of the House, we're voting on a rule that will allow the Democrats to expand the debt limit up to an unknown number. Uh, they can spend as much money as they possibly can between now and December 22, and there's no stop. There's no backstop to it. So that's actually the first step in the process is you've got to have unlimited cash if you're going to pass a multi-trillion dollar bill. When it gets finalized, it will come to the Rules Committee, and then, of course, it will come to the floor. But make no mistake about it, there's no opportunity for any Republican or any, any really any member, even a Democrat, to modify this thing and say, I think this policy is a little bit more than what we should be doing right now. Let's scale it back. Let's tone it back. Any amendment like that has been knocked out, both in the Energy and Commerce Committee, then last Saturday night in the Budget Committee. And well, the I progressives, say, and you know this, Congressman, the progressives say just the opposite. It's not nearly enough. $3.5 trillion would be the bare minimum that they're willing to accept, and they are threatening to tank the bipartisan infrastructure bill as punishment for their own party if they don't get what they want on this reconciliation Democrat-only bill let me ask you this before we get into some of the political rhetoric around this and some of the promises that the president has been making based on the current iteration of whatever this hypothetical bill is. And you're right to say it's not really legislation yet because it doesn't exist. They, there are various pieces of it, but they are still arguing amongst themselves what's in, what's out. But based on what we know up to this moment, what is in this thing? What are the highlights or perhaps the lowlights of what the Democrats are going to propose? Well, look, they've, they've always hated the fact that Texas didn't expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. So uh, rather than go back and relitigate that, they're creating a new federal Medicaid program that will be applied to states that didn't expand Medicaid. So that's Texas, but it won't be something. Medicaid is typically a shared federal state responsibility. This will be an entire federal program that is now imposed upon the state of Texas. And he might say, well, okay, maybe that's a good thing, a little more health care, everybody needs it. But one of the unspoken issues is, and it's without Hyde Amendment protections. So not only will Medicaid be expanded in Texas, it will be expanded primarily to provide 
abortion services, and it's a gift to Planned Parenthood. It is a it is unlimited spending for that activity. Um, other things like the Climate Corps, the Citizens Climate Corps, you say, well, gosh, maybe it's good that people understand a little bit more about the climate, but that's not the intent. These are these are to empower and pay activists to uh, to work on political campaigns, basically. So that will all be taxpayer funded activity. And then, you know, I'm just touching on some of the lowlights that we saw in the Energy and Commerce Committee. There's a plethora of tax law that was in the uh, the Ways and Means markup that uh, I think people would find at least questionable, if not completely objectionable. Well, so there's, there's Green New Deal it. stuff, right? There's there's energy, Green New Deal stuff that's been uh, jammed into this thing, is my understanding, new entitlement programs. I saw there's some sort of bailout for journalists or local journalism. You mentioned the abortion component. Uh, it seems like it's just a Christmas tree of left-wing stuff. It's, uh, that is exactly right. It's everything that was on has been on their list since the passage of the New Deal back in the 30s. Anything they didn't get done in the last uh, 50, 60, 70 years, now it's being crammed into this bill. And you're right, the tension does exist between moderates who want something reasonable and, and progressives who say, we want the sky's the limit. Look, the transportation bill, listen, you know, no kidding, I don't like what they've done with that, but here is a bill, an infrastructure bill, rather, that is ready to go it could come to the floor and pass this afternoon. It's already passed the Senate. doesn't need to go back there. It could go to the White House for a signing ceremony in an administration that desperately needs a win, and the progressives are going to stab it in the heart. I mean, it, it makes no sense. I, I don't like the transportation bill. I mean, the, the infrastructure bill, I think it's too much. We don't need all of the electric charging stations every 80 feet like they're providing. But still, it is, a, it is an infrastructure bill that is ready to go, and all he needs to do is bring it up for a vote, pass it, and it goes down to the president, and he can have a big signing ceremony and take take people's minds off Afghanistan for a minute. Meanwhile, I just have to correct myself. I said it was a Christmas tree of left-wing stuff. I have been asked to say it is a winter solstice tree of left-wing stuff. The woke people are very upset with me. We also know that the dollar amount, if it gets to be roughly $3.5 trillion, and that's very much in flux, I would say in doubt, that would amount to $10,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States of America. Actually, correction, every man, birthing body, and child in the United States of America. $10,000 per person is extraordinary. And, Congressman, you juxtapose that amount of spending in a non-emergency situation, in a high inflation and sustained inflation environment, and it really comes across almost as ideological insanity. It, it, it does make you ask, what is the objective here? If it is to crash the American economy and crash the American way of life, I, I don't think you'd be overstating it, because from the rhetoric I've heard in the committee markups and the, uh, the budget markups, it is uh, it's like they're on a mission, and it's like unlike anything I've ever seen. I had, we had an older colleague, you know, Ralph Hall, passed away several years ago, but he told me when the Clean Air Act passed out of the Energy and Commerce Committee, they debated it for eight months. We debated this thing for eight hours, and it's like ten times the size of the Clean Air Act as far as cost. It it really is. It just it defies gravity. It it is so. So abysmally bad. Congressman Michael Burgess, our guest, a Republican from Texas, and you said a moment ago that you've never seen anything like this Saturday night 
Zoom call markup in a committee of such a mammoth spending bill, I have not seen, and maybe you can tell me if I've missed something, I have not seen before an attempt by a political party in the United States to argue that trillions of dollars in new spending that they simultaneously call a record historic quote-unquote investment is also at the same time concurrently basically free, costing zero dollars. This is the talking point. There's no cost to this. It's going to cost zero dollars because they claim it's paid for. I'm still sort of astonished that they are sticking with this talking point. I think it's so insulting to even the least engaged voter who's not paying attention. I think the average person says trillions of dollars in spending. There's no way that costs zero dollars. But it seems like that's what your colleagues have settled on as their talking point. Have you ever experienced that one before? Is this a novel talking point in your experience? Yeah, it is a novel talking point. And it's intuitively obvious to the casual observer that that's nonsense, that that's a lie. Lacey, your word insulting is probably the best one I've heard. Uh, uh, insult the intelligence of the of the voter and see how that works out for you. But nevertheless, that's the that's the horse and that's what they're riding. Yeah, never mind the reins. We spent some time on this show yesterday in some detail, noting some of the analyses and factors based on this shell of a bill that they've been working through in these committees that would violate a pledge made by President Biden that he would not raise taxes on anyone making less than four hundred thousand dollars a year. He reiterated that pledge yesterday in a tweet. He said, we have his word as a Biden that that will not happen, not one cent for anyone under that threshold. My understanding is that is not true. You have a better understanding of this bill. You have a better understanding of the pay-fors that are being discussed or implemented. What is your analysis of what the president says over and over again, that promise that he's making about taxes? Well, you can only make that promise if you exclude anyone who happens to drive, uh, use electricity in their house, or perhaps uh, smoke, which I don't recommend. People shouldn't smoke, but nevertheless. And we, we know the people who do consume tobacco tend to be at the lower strata of income earners, and they're getting hammered with, a, with an additional tobacco tax. And does that go to pay for more medical treatments or pay for doctor visits? No, it goes to some... Uh, the, the, goes into the ether of, of expanding government. Uh, the gasoline price or cost for the average family will go up by about $2,000. There is a, they don't call it a tax, but there's an adjustment on methane, which is natural gas that uh, runs our generators, that provides us electricity to charge up our electric cars. And there is going to be a methane usage fee attached to this, which will, again, increase electricity costs by somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. So maybe it's not a tax to them, but it is going to cost average American families who earn under $500,000 a year significant amounts of money. Yep. And we saw at least preliminary reporting from the Joint Committee on Taxation that found that a significant percentage of middle-class families in this country will see their taxes increase under the bill as it is currently emerging. Again, I think that once there's a final bill, we will have all the actual facts to deal with and to highlight the issues, the problems, the flaws, the waste, the taxes, all of it. Right now, you're sort of 
shooting at a moving target because the Democrats don't really have a settled target. That's actually part of their problem right now. But what the Joint Committee on Taxation has found thus far is tax increases coming for working and middle class people, significant percentages of those income groups, when the promise from the president is that would never happen. That's his word as a Biden, he said. And for some of the reasons that you just laid out and some of the counterexamples, it would appear that already that will not be the case. And we will wait and see, I guess, what the final product looks like if they get to one, because they're having a whale of a time doing that right now over on the Democratic side. Congressman Michael Burgess of Texas 26 down in the Lone Star State. Congressman, thank you very much for your time today and your insights into a process that you have been uh, witnessing for better or for worse from a, a front row seat. Well, and uh, and here's the bottom line: we just got to stop this thing. So, if people can weigh in, if they're representing, if they're represented by a Democrat member of Congress, call their office and let them know that you don't like the what you're seeing what's happening with taxes and spending, and you, you'd like some accountability here, because that's the way that's the way to get their attention. It's not uh, because a Republican has a, a, a clever point that he makes in the Rules Committee; it's that they're they respond to their constituents. We all do. Michael Burgess on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Here's a headline from CBS News, comes out of Denmark. A museum gave an artist $84,000 in cash to use in artwork. He delivered blank canvases to the museum and titled the works, Take the Money and Run. So I guess the idea was for him to incorporate the cash into the art, and he decided that he would do that in a very sort of abstract way. Namely, do no art, pocket the money, and then say that act unto itself was art and give them blank canvases. Question, can they argue with that? Art is subjective. right? He can say what he has done, the artistic choices that he has made. The artistic license in this case was to take the cash and then make a joke in the title of the art, which is just nothing, and say that is the art. It's relatively clever if he can get away with it. Of course, it involves no work. I wonder if they could actually sue him or this could be a crime. I don't know. I think that would be a very interesting trial. If it went to trial with him making the case, I mean, wasn't there a, a story recently about some piece of art where it was a canvas with a banana taped to it with duct tape and it was this, ooh, look at this genius. What's the difference between that and what this guy did? Minus a piece of duct tape and a banana, and a lot of money, where he was compensated for his artistic license. Somewhere, someplace, Hunter Biden is watching this story very carefully. One might say he's intrigued, given his new profession, his new grift. He's an artiste. The Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show resumes shortly. You're 
listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour. And at the very top of today's program, very first segment, we welcome back to the show Greg Abbott, governor of the great state of Texas. A lot to discuss with him, especially about the border. Here is some of our interview with Texas Governor Greg Abbott. I would like to begin by discussing the situation at the border that you have been concentrating on for obvious reasons now for quite some period of time. Just as a broad question, President Biden seems to attack and demonize you by name or by implication on a regular basis on a host of different issues. And it's his policies and his administration that are failing your state, I think, so glaringly that the president's numbers have completely tanked on the issue of immigration. What is your reaction when you see these barbs on a regular basis coming from the White House, coming from a president whose policies and rhetoric are causing the crisis at the border and who himself seems to rarely take any questions from the media where he might be pressed on his failures? Well, we, we see it uh, as, as a president who is flailing, in addition to failing, uh, on an issue that may be the most important issue in the United States of America right now. Uh, and he's doing absolutely nothing about it. It is a glaring issue, uh, the fact uh, that apparently in his entire lifetime, but definitely during his time in public service, he has not even been to the border. He doesn't know what he's talking about down there, uh, and he's clueless. However, despite being clueless about it, he is imposing these open border policies. He's doing it to try to advance the agenda of people like Ocasio-Cortez. And I think one reason why he's afraid to talk about it is because he really has no answer to the danger uh, that he's brought into the United States. Just moments before coming on your show, I saw uh, a comment by uh, Secretary Mayorkas who said that uh, he was surprised about the danger about the caused by the number of people coming across the border with COVID. The president and his Secretary of Homeland Security, they themselves are surprised, meaning that they do not know what's really going on with regard to importing COVID into the United States of America because of their open border policies. This is reckless. Uh, it's dangerous. Uh, they are not following or enforcing the laws of the United States of America, and all of them must be accountable for their uh, policies and for their agenda that ignores the United States laws. Yeah, so this is the thing. They attack you on COVID, for example, and yet here they are admitting that they're not even testing tens of thousands, and I mean, it's really hundreds of thousands every month of illegal immigrants who enter the country and then thousands of those they simply release into the country without COVID tests, certainly without a vaccine, you know, vaccination requirements. I'm very pro vaccine. I know you are as well. There's a question about mandates and who should be mandated to take the vaccine. This is something that the federal government, the Biden administration is trying to impose. They are mandating vaccine proof for people, for example, who want to fly into the United States from heavily vaccinated European countries. You got to show that when you show up to enter the country legally. But if you're entering the country illegally at the southern border, no such restrictions or mandates apply. And I think a lot of Americans look at that and cannot help but see a glaring double standard that makes, frankly, no sense. This is a double standard by the Biden administration, but it's, of course, uh, not the first and only uh, double standard they have imposed. But listen, there's some very easy math here. 
we, we all know the vaccination rates that we have in the United States, including in the state of Texas. And we, we also know that uh, every other country that these people are coming from and coming through uh, when they cross our border illegally from our southern border, uh, that those countries are far less vaccinated. Mexico, for example, far less vaccinated. COVID is easier spread there. But whether they're coming from Haiti or Colombia or uh, Chile or wherever they're coming from, uh, these people, they're coming from countries and crossing through countries uh, where people are not vaccinated, where COVID is far more rampant. And so it just has to be expected that the people who are coming across our southern border uh, will have COVID at a higher degree than what we have in the United States. And so it is reprehensible. It is reckless. Uh, it may be criminal uh, for the fact that they are not testing them. Uh, they're doing nothing about vaccinating them, but they are putting them on different transportation devices. It could be buses. It could be planes. And they are moving them about the United States of America, knowingly exposing their fellow Americans to a disease uh, that the Biden administration supposedly says he's trying to stop. But because of his policies, he's helping to spread in his own country. It's just reprehensible. Yeah, it's, it's an right. active active pandemic right now. This is not something that you're just sort of, you know, creating out of thin air or trying to demonize immigrants for being diseased. I know that some people on the left say, oh, this is the fear mongering from the right. No, it's it's a global pandemic that has been raging now for the better part of two years. And here's the other report that I saw that I want to get your reaction to, Governor. Fox reported today that the Mexican government has now felt compelled to open, quote, an Olympic sized stadium to deal with the flow of migrants who are coming to America. They're not going to seek refuge in Mexico. They want to come to the United States. As I always say, I don't blame them. I would also want to come here, but they don't have a right to be here. And asylum claims are very rarely bona fide among and, and sort of established and confirmed among a lot of these people who try to claim that sort of status or refugee status. And it's not like the incidents at Del Rio, Texas, and, and that mess is the end of it. It's only the beginning of it because we know that there are tens of thousands of people learning the lessons of what happened in Del Rio and stepping up their efforts to come up through Mexico to the southern border to cross that border and then to wait. And in many cases, they will be released into the United States should the current policy continue. And we see all of this happening in Secretary Mayorkas goes on television and goes before Congress and says the border is secure. My full interview with the Texas governor available online. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. All the things that you need to know and access about the program. It's right there. The podcast free every day on demand. No charge. As soon as the show ends, we recommend that if you missed any of today's show. When we come back, the home stretch for producer Christine. It is already Christmas season in a sense. She's very proud of herself. We are not proud of her, but she's going to make her case when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch, which begins today with the firing of our new technical producer. As we are bumping into this segment, if you're listening on the podcast, to an instrumental version of Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. I will remind everyone that we are still a month plus away from Halloween. It is September here in the year of our Lord, 2021. And yet, our cookie, 
producer Christine, who I know is responsible for this. So I, I rescind the firing of Dan, who's new and uh, he's still slightly in fear of producer Christine. So he'll learn to push back as things progress. But I know that she must have pushed for this because she, as you know, if you're a regular listener, is constantly insisting that the next holiday or the next season start far too early, which is why she curls up by the fire with some pumpkin spice hot cuckoo in like early July. And she gets all of her autumn decorations ready to go. She is trying to make a case to the team that it's already time for Christmas, sort of. And she is taking Christmas-related action already in September. She knows that we do not do Christmas music on this show or in my life until December 1st. So by trolling me and taking advantage of Dan, our new addition to the team, with Christmas music in September, there will be consequences and real consequences. Like I'm not going to drone some minivan, some other family. We're going to find the person responsible for this. We will hunt her down and we will deliver justice in the form of French onion soup. All right, Cookie, what is your scheme today? Why are we even doing this? So I, I, I do have to say, because poor Dan, I did tell him to do that. And he did actually just question it and said, uh, are we sure we should do this? And I said, yeah. And he's not going to be happy about it. And don't tell him. Just do it. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Dan, for listening to me. Uh, that probably be the first and last time mm-hmm. I will yeah, get Christmas music this early. But listen, there are multiple stories out there that there is major shipping issues around the world that is going to cause problems in getting your gift, your ho- I won't even say Christmas, your holiday gifts on time. Amazon is even saying mm, after Black Friday, you know, it, it's not going to be a two day and you get your gift like it normally is. There are major issues out there. And that is why, Guy Benson, I've already started my Christmas shopping. I've already received a few gifts uh, in the mail. Uh, I, hit it wait, away. wait, so, so hold and, up. I'm just going to throw your own words back in your face here. You said that the concern might be that shipping after Black Friday in time for Christmas could be potentially a challenge in some cases. Can I remind you that Black Friday is November 26th and today is September 29th? Yeah, so you should be even prouder of me that I'm thinking even more ahead. So, yay me. So you have Christmas gifts, what, for your daughter that are already ordered and delivered in September. Where do you hide these things? Because I think the longer you have Christmas gifts sitting around your house, the higher the chances that the recipient of the gift will accidentally discover it, ruining the magic Uh, of Christmas. No, no, no. Uh, These gifts are... are, Like, ooh, uh, yes, Santa worked very hard on these gifts for you. It's like, Mom, I saw them before Halloween in the shed next to your giant vat of booze. I don't keep my booze. It has to be temperature controlled. That's true. You would never keep it in the shed. Okay, my mistake. My mistake. Uh, I already have a plan for that if that day ever comes where she unexpectedly finds them. 
So I'm I'm okay with that because um, What's the plan? Santa is so Santa is so so busy that sometimes he writes letters to the parents and says, "I'm going to drop these off. I'm still coming. I'm still going to be there on Christmas Eve, but." Can I drop yeah. these gifts off now and you wrap Christine, them for me? I just have to tell you something. Megan is yes. eight, so I feel like yes, you're kind is. of hitting up against the wall here on certain revelations. I don't want to say anything more. This is a family okay. audience, and there there's little kitty poos yes. perhaps running around and listening, but I think you know what I'm talking about. So I would be extra yes. careful this year because it could be a special final one, potentially, potentially. Oh, no, I think we have some time. But anyway... All I'm saying to you and to the audience out there, and you are going to thank me, is start the shopping now. Talk to your family. And you know what? If your family is judgmental like my family is, ignore it. They're going to be happy when they actually have gifts on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or Hanukkah or whatever you celebrate on that holiday, that they actually have something to open and that you thought ahead because of me. Duh. Christine, what did your mother, Judgy Joyce, tell you about this? So it's funny. I, I thought she had said I was one sick kid when I asked her for my list, but Bobby reminded me when I called him earlier that she actually called me one sick pup. Because I called Oh, she her called you said, like um, a sick puppy. Yeah, you're one sick pup, Chris. Because I said, I need uh, your, uh, your you know, we always... My mom, like, we get her a lot of presents. So I said, I need the Christmas list to buy this weekend. And she said, excuse me? And I, I explained the shortage. Apparently, she does, she's not reading the news and didn't see this. And uh, she said, <laughs> she I am you not. <laughs> one sick you pup. You know what, Good Chris? for her. You're one sick pup. Yeah, good for her. I like that. It's tough love. And frankly, in your world, it's better to be one sick puppy than one trick pony because we know what would happen to that pony now christine i do have to confess something to you, you and it is somewhat present? no 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 but oh. every year with the exception of last year where we had to like radically change the plan because of covid but every year since i moved to dc so it's been oof, 11 years now i have hosted a christmas party at my place in my little sort of a studio condo and then my two-bedroom condo and then we've expanded at the house and it's gotten kind of extravagant where we had a tent and we had catering and a bartender and all this stuff and we are hoping to bring that tradition back this coming Christmas season and I have to say because there's planning involved and saving money and trying to get people lined up for desirable dates, if it's a caterer, and trying to get your invitations out before everyone else gets booked up, we may or may not have settled on a Christmas party date already, yes, in September, because of the advanced planning. I think it's different than the gift-buying nonsense that you're talking no, about. It's but not. it is no. a little bit of planning that has taken place in our household. I I couldn't be prouder of you. Uh, no, I I no. am going to assume I'm 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 on the list for the party. Yes. Um, you know, that's still it's like the Democrats on Capitol Hill. It's still very fluid. We're not really sure uh, what's going to happen there. And we'll uh, we'll keep you abreast of that. Perhaps you just don't call the, me. We'll call you. I'll get the date out of Wyatt. You will not. He is very quiet. Yeah, he doesn't want to lose his privileges. He doesn't want to lose his invite by going rogue. 
Oh, poor Dan. And also, I, I will just already. point out, the last time that you were invited to a party hosted at our house that you said you wanted to be invited to, you didn't show up, even though you were committed to bringing stuff, and you said so on the air. So even if I wanted to invite you to the Christmas party, I feel like you've made clear that, I mean, you're basically Joe Biden over here with your promises and your word, you know, you're take my word as a cookie. I will be at this party. Uh, we've been there, done that. And it was a giant swing and a miss. And everyone was devastated. And by everyone, I mean, potentially someone may have been devastated at some point, but you didn't show up. That's the lesson here. I'm coming. I, I I'm putting this mark this right down right now. I will be if I'm invited, I will be at that Christmas party. And I already actually I'm going to order it today. I already know what I'm getting you for a gift. And all I'm going to say is your front yard is going to thank me. I swear if you get a giant blow up Christmas thing to put in our front yard, I will put it out. I will inflate it. I will borrow a friend's firearm and I will shoot it so that it explodes. Not only will you not do that, it will be set up for the big party. So when everybody and I, there might be no. some music on the outside. Yeah, don't worry. I got no, this. No, I that's got the this. thing. It's, it's Very exciting. We, do Very a, exciting. we do a classy event. This yes. is not an yes. eyesore lane extravaganza. This is something different. Okay, we can we can talk about this offline, but uh, well, it'll. I'll tell you this: it is a Friday or a Saturday night between now and early January. Back here tomorrow on the Guy Benson Show Thursday edition. It could be a very busy day on Capitol Hill. High drama, high wire act for the Democrats. What's going to happen? We will have you fully covered right here, same time, same place. Guy Benson Show. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.